Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. Here's our big idea for this morning. We bear witness by the Spirit to either be hated by sinners or loved by saints. We bear witness by the Spirit to either be hated by sinners or loved by saints. We're going to see this in three different phases. In verses 18 through 20, the world hates anyone connected with Jesus. Verses 21 through 25, the world rejects Jesus because it didn't know the Father. And in verses 26 through 27, we bear witness to Jesus by the Spirit. You ever feel hated? You ever feel out of place? Like you don't belong? This morning, Jesus invites us to a world that may not accept people like him because of him. And we might even kind of, this morning, kind of unpack a a theology of the world, as it were, a way to understand the environment that we find ourselves in. If you would have kind of rewound about 30 or 40 years ago, Christians enjoyed the state of privilege in the world. It was largely a Christian society here in the United States, and uh, at least... uh, only nominally they held to Christian ideals, Christian morals, Christian principles. Perhaps you're in the world now and you're wondering, what has happened? Recognize that there are lots of truth claims being brought to the table, aren't there? There's the Christian worldview saying, yes, I I believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he's formed the world, and that he has certain desires for how this world should run and how we should run our lives. But there's also the claims of other world religions. There's claims of Buddhism and, and naturalism and paganism and all these things kind of brought to the table, as it were. And that's not to mention the religious nuns who have no religious affiliation whatsoever, but they run their ethics and their morality based upon the common consensus of the culture and the world. And everyone's just kind of bringing these uh, worldviews to the table and unpacking them. And it's confusing, isn't it? It's confusing for us here as we try to navigate what this world is and how to interact. What Jesus is drawing us to today is this idea that we bear witness by the Spirit. And the natural outcome of that is to be hated by the world and loved by his people. That being said, I want to dive in this morning into our text. And we're going to start in verses 18 through 20. And we're going to see this, that the world hates anyone connected with Jesus. Jesse already read this portion. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Starts off in verse 18, and he gives this principle, right? Know that it's hated me before it hated you. Jesus tells us that the world hated him first. Now, first, we want to unpack this issue of what it is to hate, right? You and I might not experience the hate that the first century uh, apostles felt or Jesus himself felt. You and I uh, don't get whipped and beaten when we claim Jesus, but we do experience relational difficulty, don't we? We, we have problems with bosses, problems with neighbors, problems with friends because we openly speak about our faith in Jesus. 
See, what Jesus is describing here as this world has hated him isn't just a hatred like someone might hate anchovies or rom-coms or, or a nickelback, right? The hatred wasn't just dislike or preferences. This hatred was murderous. And we've seen this in the book of John. In John chapter 5, John tells us that the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he healed someone on the Sabbath. And when Jesus gave an explanation of this, saying, my father is working until now, and so I'm working, the Jewish authorities were seeking to kill him, to put him to death. See, these disciples also, just like Jesus, they would face legitimate hatred. See, verse 18 says, if the world hates you. But verse 20 brings a little bit more clarity, right? If they persecuted me, which they did, they'll also persecute you. You know, if you kind of fast forward in your Bible to the book of Acts, there's this long-standing history of hatred directed toward Jesus' disciples, Jesus' followers. Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are arrested because they're preaching the gospel, and the Sadducees, it says, they were greatly annoyed at the preaching of the resurrection in Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Acts 5, 17, apostles are arrested because of the high priest and the Sadducees. In Acts chapter 5, verse 33, the high priest and Sadducees are enraged and want to kill the apostles. In Acts chapter 12, Herod kills James and arrests Peter because it pleases the Jews. And so these disciples won't just experience the same emotional kind of life that's directed at them, they will actually experience the same sins, sinned against them that Jesus experienced. Jesus, in verse 19, starts to unpack why this is the case. See, the world hates these disciples because Jesus chose them. That's what he says in verse 19. I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember back in verse 16, we just saw this last week. Jesus said that he chose his disciples. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear much fruit. But here, Jesus is saying that this choosing is the cause or one of the causes of this hatred that they will receive. See, Jesus tells us clearly in this verse, in verse 19, that if we were of the world, the world would accept us. Paul kind of says the same thing in Romans chapter 1. Uh, he talks about those who are sinful. They're given to all these different uh, sins, and he lists them off in Romans chapter 1, verses 30 and 31. And then at verse 32, he says this, they, they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. When people act like sinners, the world applauds them. If you were to step into work tomorrow and talk about your life of debauchery or your life of uh, wanton sexuality or whatever else, there would be someone in your office place that would condone every act that you put forth. So Jesus hates them, or the world hates them because Jesus chose them. We get this summary statement in verse 20. Jesus says, remember the word that I said to you. Servant is not greater than his master. Remember that when he's washing his disciples' feet? They persecuted me. They will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. A person's relationship to Jesus determines their relation to 
the disciples. Like, if, if the world saw that you were acting like Jesus, they will reject you like they reject Jesus. If, if they are someone who has faith in Jesus, they see that you're acting like Jesus, they will accept you like they accept Jesus. There's this kind of principle that's stated there. Jesus then becomes this kind of authenticating touchstone of faith, right? You know what a touchstone is? It's this piece of uh, material that if you touch a gold or a silver to it, it will determine uh, the validity of that stone. You touch fool's gold to it, it doesn't work, right? Jesus is this touchstone. Those who recoil at his name will recoil at the words of God preached by his people or spoken by his people. Those who embrace Jesus in faith will embrace those who speak those words. See, what happens, though, in verses 21 through 25 is Jesus unpacks why. He's touched on it a little bit, talked about choosing but in verses 21 through 25, he wants to kind of open up the cabinets, as it were. He wants to show us what exactly is behind this hatred. Look at verses 21 through 25. But all these things they do, will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. What's going on here? What's Jesus talking about? First, he describes that in verse 21. Look at what, what happens in verse 21. These things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him. That's the father, right? You see this kind of like Russian doll concept that's happening here. See, the disciples are rejected because Jesus is rejected because the father isn't known. It stands to reason then, right? If, if connection to Jesus is what makes us fruitful, when we abide in Jesus, we bear much fruit, and they're rejecting Jesus, they'll reject us also. Right? Like if you dislike Elon Musk, you probably aren't going to buy a Tesla. If you've ever used a Microsoft product, when I say the name Bill Gates, you'll probably spit on the ground somewhere, right? If you hate Ikea, you're probably not going to buy a Birkentig or a Gronkula or a Flardful or whatever those things are that they sell, right? See, just as the products have become associated with those who make them, so also we are representatives of Jesus who causes us to bear fruit. And when we bear that fruit, it reminds them of the Jesus and the Father that they've rejected. See, the, un the world unwittingly directs its hatred for God at all of those associated with him. And by nature of being chosen by Jesus, the Father's one true Son, disciples are connected with the Father. But this is what, what's interesting is what happens next in verses 22 through 24. Jesus exposes sin by his word and his works in verses 22. There's this like formula that shows up and it's on the screen. You see these, these phrases in verse both 22 and 24, excuse me. And he starts off and he say, if I had not blank, and they'll say something. And then he say, then they would not be guilty of sin. And then he'll close it out with this phrase, but now, okay? So if you look at verses 22 and 24, there's this kind of similar statement that's happening there. Look at verse 22 with me then. Jesus says, 
uh, if I had not come and spoken to them, right? There's the, if I had not, and spoken his words. He speaks his words. And again, in verse 24, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, right? Jesus is highlighting his word and his works that bring about a specific situation. And that's our next phrase. They would not be guilty of sin. And we have to be careful here because these Pharisees and Sadducees were guilty of sin from their birth, just like we are. The Pharisees uh, and Sadducees were uh, actively rejecting Jesus. And what Jesus is highlighting here is he's saying, I, my, my word and my works are highlighting the sin that already existed in them before I came. And so when I came and I spoke the words of the Father, they rejected me. And when I came and I did the works of the Father, they rejected me. See, that's the phrase then, but now. Verse 22, he says, but now. They have no excuse for their sin. Or verse 24 says, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father, right? So the result of this kind of showing up of Jesus and speaking the words of God and the works of God is that they are without excuse. That Jesus has manifested the father in their presence. And when they rejected him, they showed themselves to be sinful already. See, all of this culminates to affirm that the world is without excuse, as verses 22 and 24 say. Jesus' words and works have negated uh, our sinful excuse to, to kind of say, hey, God, you, you didn't treat me right. You didn't show yourself to me. There's no excuse any longer because Jesus has been present. Verse 25 is interesting. Jesus starts to talk about the fulfillment of Scripture and he quotes from, from Psalm 35. It says, they hated me without excuse. A verse, uh, psalm 35 is an interesting psalm. Because what's happening in Psalm 35 is David is describing how he has treated his enemy with kindness and respect, and his enemy has still sought his death. So what happens is that David is describing this. Psalm 35, David describes being mistreated by those whom he treated well. Now, what we need to think about is the person Saul. Remember Saul and David? They didn't get along, and every other day, Saul was like throwing a spear at David, you know? Like, it was just constantly trying to take David out, out of jealousy. David even calls in Psalm 35, uh, he calls on God to use a spear, and so there's just these echoes of this relationship between David and Saul. And in verse 8, Psalm 35 says this, Let destruction come upon him when he does not know it, and let the net that he hid ensnare him. Let him fall into it to his destruction. So David's asking that his enemies would fall into this destruction that he himself had created. That he's asking for uh, this this way of life where this person whose enemy was pursuing his death would ultimately lead to his own death. It reminds us of the story of Naaman, right? You remember the story of Naaman in, in the book of Esther? Naaman makes this gallows on which to hang uh, the Jew Mordecai. And, and Mordecai is trying to be faithful to the Lord and trying to preserve God's people. And sure enough, 24 hours after Naaman has made these gallows to hang Mordecai upon, Naaman himself is hung there to his death. See, Jesus quotes this psalm to highlight that this trap, Jesus' death, Jesus' rejection, will be the means of this world's judgment. When Jesus had done nothing wrong, they hated him unto death. 
And that very death and resurrection will be the means of this world's judgment. Whether you scoffed at Jesus in the first century or the 21st century, God uses the mocking of His Son as the means for eternal judgment. Kind of stop and just pull back from this passage for a second. We realize that Jesus tells us uh, something very specific about us. That mankind doesn't naturally know God. That's what He says there, right? Verse 23, or verse 21, excuse me. Um, because they do not know him who sent me. It's interesting because Paul seems to say the opposite in Romans chapter 1. Just listen to this. And I know we're familiar with it, but just listen to this again. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness who by their, uh, of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. So Jesus is saying they don't know God. Paul is saying they knew God and rejected him. And the culmination of the two phrases is the same, right? The problem is not that they don't know God. It's that they don't honor God. The sin which Jesus speaks of in verses 22 through 24 is the hating of the Father, not honoring him, not worshiping him, not living in reverence to him. And that is how they hate Jesus. They reject the righteous God who sent him. I just bring some clarity here this morning. How is it this morning that you and I try to avoid this hatred that might be bound up inside of us, right? Jesus is giving us a clear thing. Go ahead and tip, flip to the next slide, right? That connection with Jesus leads to hatred from the world, right? It's as clear as day in what Jesus has been saying to us. If, if we're really connected to Jesus and really connected to the Father, it will naturally lead to hatred from the world. Notice, too, this morning, Jesus isn't just talking to these 11 disciples. He's saying all that are connected to the Father will receive this hatred. You and I, we're tempted to kind of bypass this. We're tempted to kind of just cling to a little bit of Jesus, but avoid the hatred of the world. I wonder if we might highlight a couple different ways that that happens. Particularly, we see this in two different branches. Now, understand that I'm talking about liberal Christianity as a branch of theology and political conservatism as a branch of politics. We just want to highlight these two things because at times both will say that they are connected to Jesus Christ. Liberal theology, if you're not familiar with it, wants to change what God said, even the bastion of Academia, Wikipedia says this. Take into cons- they take into consideration modern knowledge. And so what happens then is that liberal Christianity has always tried to be a hybrid of biblical theology, biblical ethics, and contemporary understanding. It's a consistent invitation to compromise. And so God, things like this happen. God becomes all love, but no justice. Um, 
it changes the ethical statements of the Bible about sex and immorality. It pushes away from the miraculous. See, what this extended from was in the 1920s, 1930s, and before, there was this movement called higher criticism. And specifically, it kind of found its pitch, its fever pitch in, in Germany. And what happened is the rationalistic, rationalistic methods of Kant and Hegel were applied to the scriptures themselves. So they were kind of, uh, you know, applying these issues of logic and ra rationalism to the scriptures themselves and doing away with the miraculous portions of the Bible. In his bi biography on Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, uh, God, who's the guy who wrote it? Eric Metaxas. Yeah, somebody's, Brian, Brian's like an encyclopedia over here. It's kind of nerve-wracking to have him around. Eric Metaxas, in his biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, highlights the degradation of the scriptures by German scholars and how that led to the Nazi party. See, liberal tendencies always want to redefine Christianity, and thus, that's how they avoid the world's hatred for Christ, because they worship a different Jesus. We see this today in mainline denominations. We see the foregoing and the loss of the scriptures, ultimately the loss of Jesus and the loss of the gospel. See, fundamentally, the liberal Christian sees the world's solution as open-mindedness. If we could just be more open-minded and accepting of new ideas, then we would be okay. We could avoid the hatred of the world, and we could all sing kumbaya together, right? But another way that we can kind of bypass this hatred is through political conservatism. See, political conservatism wants to avoid hatred by electing leaders who will defend what they call religious liberty. Now, just hold on here for a second. I would define myself as a conservative, right? So please hear me. I'm picking at our own camp. See, our tendency is to lean on men, men of power, in order to avoid the outcomes that Jesus is describing here. The political conservative's hope is to place that right representative in power to guarantee our rights as Christians. But we have to recognize the difference between how Jesus describes the world's hatred and the expectations of unimpeded Christian faith and liberty from our political pundits. If the liberal has changed what God said, the conservative has turned to a different God altogether. Some political conservatives have wrapped their arms around men of putrid character. And we see that today. Men who are not worth following. And in the name of political expediency, we cast our vote. We throw our hopes into their campaign. So notice then, the liberal Christian and the political conservative are the same in this area, avoiding the hatred of the world through either twisting and adulterating the word of God or by turning to wicked men to lead them. 
I'm not saying that's always the case. But by and large, there are two areas that we need to be concerned about as we hear about Jesus' description. See, Jesus is clear. The world will always hate Christians because they will always hate God. If the world is at enmity with God, it will be at enmity with Christians. So I heard someone recently say that if the church were to pursue this avenue of political involvement, that maybe the world would start to listen to them more. I just thought, that is a fool's errand. As long as every man is a sinner, there's no solution that we can advocate for that will lead to our acceptance. And we need to leave behind this idea that we can just earn our reputation and earn our standing in society. If Jesus was rejected in society, what makes us think that we can be accepted in society? See, this is the world that you and I woke up in this morning, right? We woke up in a world where men and women are naturally opposed to God. And thereby, when we speak the words of God and we live out the morality of God and we speak about our hope in God, they will reject us. That's the world you woke up in this morning. It's the world that I woke up in this morning. And Jason, this is a real bummer of a message so far this morning, right? I don't think so. When I started off writing this sermon this week, I thought, I wonder if Jesus had a lump in his throat when he started to, to say these things to, to his disciples. I wonder if he, if he knew, because he did know, but he knew that Peter was going to be hung on an upside-down cross. He knew that John was going to be exiled to the Isle of Patmos, that all of these disciples were likely going to die a martyr's death, and they all did, according to tradition. And so I wondered if, if Jesus kind of got emotional, if it kind of stuck in his throat as he was speaking these things. But I don't think that's true. Because I think there's hope bound up in these words. I think Jesus may have said these things, maybe not with a smile on his face, but with confidence that the Lord was going to meet his disciples in the midst of this. And so in verses 26 through 27, we have this restatement of purpose, right? We have this call to bear witness. Look at verse 26. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will witness about me. Now just notice the Trinitarian nature of what's happening here, right? The world's going to hate you, but I'm sending the Spirit, and he's coming from me and the Father, right? And he's going to bear witness about me, Jesus says. Don't get lost in this hatred idea. You have work to do. We've got to speak up about the hope that we have in Christ, Verse 27, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Notice this kind, of, this kind of working together. The Spirit is bearing witness as we are bearing witness. The Spirit bearing witness through his people as they're empowered by the Spirit, right? It's not just all death and dying and martyrdom and persecution. What's happening is this world where in which we go out to the world with the hope that we have of the Spirit speaking truth of Jesus to this world, so that we might see men and women brought to faith in Jesus Christ. 
See, the disciples are called on to bear witness because they've been with Jesus, right? They've been with Christ. They've seen him. They've touched him. They've smelled him. 1 John chapter 1 highlights this. When, When John opens up his epistle, he says, that which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. In verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. These disciples were called upon to speak about what they'd seen and smelled and heard and touched in Jesus Christ. So there's hope this morning. So what happens as we pull away from this passage is that Christians have to learn how to navigate the world's hatred through this thing we've been talking about for the last three weeks, abiding in Christ. You and I, Christian, we have to learn how to work our way through the world that hates us, that rejects us because of our tie to Jesus through the empowerment of abiding in Jesus. We go back all the way to chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Remember that, that Jesus talks about how every branch that, that bears fruit, he prunes. He cuts it back so that they can bear more fruit. This hatred that the world meets us with, it's a kind of pruning, isn't it? Kind of cutting back so that we learn to value the world less and value Christ more so that we learn to abide in in the words and love of Jesus as he's he's described? See, this hatred teaches us to let go of the world's respect and admiration. It, It tells us that we will always be in a state of disfavor with a world that disfavored Jesus. And it recognizes not just that we're pruned, but that Jesus was pruned first. Wasn't he? Isn't that what Jesus says in John 15, verse 1? He says, I am the vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Jesus was the original vine that had to be cut back so that it could bear fruit in us, so that we could become those branches that bear fruit. See, Jesus was pruned first. The true vine was cut back. Jesus willingly laid down his life as his father, the vine dresser, cut him. Isaiah 53 says that it was the father's will to crush Jesus. And as Jesus breathed his last at Calvary, the father cut off that final bit of branch that by his son's bleeding, his pruning, if you will, the father, God, would then initiate a restoration for his people. That vine came back. Death was not the end of Jesus' story. Jesus was raised again. The vine started to grow once more. The pruning of the Father bore the first fruits of Jesus' resurrected life. And as we abide in Christ, we also bear fruit. Kind of come back to our situation here that our connection with Jesus, rather than turning to some of these distortions of Christian faith, when we abide in the true person of Jesus, we can endure the world's hatred. 
and can bear fruit in the midst of of the difficulties that we face. While we try to avoid the outcomes of this world's hatred, Jesus wants to make us fruitful amidst their hatred. Spending our energy avoiding a hatred which with God only causes distortions in the message. But abiding in Christ amidst the world's rejection highlights fruitfulness. We have a ton of examples of this, don't we? Remember Jim Elliott, who in the face of death still went to the Aka Indians and spoke the gospel, even though it meant the taking of his life. William Tyndall, who bore fruit for the kingdom by translating the Bible into English. And even after that, they strangled him and burned him at the stake. See, that's the hope in this passage, that Jesus was still willing to die for those who hated him. That you and I were this rebellious person against God's plan, and God still sent his son. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So we might ask, so what? What's the point? You and I are called to bear fruit amidst fire, aren't we? You and I can bear fruit amidst the world's hate. In fact, I think you can bear fruit because of the world's hate. That pressure of living opposite the world means we need to establish a means of being renewed by Christ, by turning to Christ in faith all the time. It's the idea that tomorrow morning you're going to wake up and you're going to go into a workplace or you're going to speak with someone that doesn't hold to the same faith you hold to. It doesn't matter where you work. I work alone. And every morning I look in the mirror and see someone who rejects Jesus quite often. But we all rub shoulders with those who don't hold to faith in Jesus Christ. And that kind of wears on us, doesn't it? It's, it's like that pebble in the stream where the water is just continually rushing over it, and it kind of takes off of its rush, rough edges. The more we're in the world, the more it kind of just chips away at us. You and I need to be renewed through abiding with Christ. We must refuse to turn to earthly comforts for spiritual rest. Did you hear that? We, we have to learn to turn not to earthly comforts, but refuse to turn to earthly comforts to find spiritual rest. You and I cannot find spiritual rest through a vacation. You and I cannot find spiritual rest through Netflix. You and I cannot find spiritual rest through fantasy. You cannot find spiritual rest through your hobbies. Your spiritual rest needs to be found in Christ. See, the only sufficient power for our renewal, our strengthening, is Jesus, right? By abiding in Christ, you have all that you need to face the pressures of this world. Let's make this practical. So tomorrow morning, you're getting up to go to that workplace. You recognize the pressures of the day. You have to do X and Y and Z, those tasks. But also, you have to face this person and that person that are tense relationships. You have to navigate uh, the pressures of your life, just paying bills, going through traffic, all of those things. All of these arenas show that you have various pressures on you. 
And when so-and-so at work recognizes that you're a Christian and, and gives you a hard time because of your faith or even just treats you differently because of your faith, that requires some kind of different interaction from you. It requires you to have time with your Savior, Jesus Christ to open up his word, to pray to him, to have this life of give and take with Christ. It requires that you go through your day in a prayerful way, right? That you don't just close your Bible and leave it on the, on the dresser or wherever else it might go, that you actually go through your life with an active dependence upon Christ so that you articulate that faith winsomely, helpfully to those who hate him. morning we if we're going to kind of navigate what god calls us to navigate in this world if we're going to get through this world with uh, our faith intact it's going to come through the process of abiding in christ it really is that simple isn't it i was at a conference this week and I love conferences. They're usually pretty encouraging. But sometimes conferences can be overwhelming because what they do is they tell you a list of things that you have to do better at, right? You have to do better at preaching, and you have to do better at mission, and you have to do better at discipleship, and you have to do better at X and Y and Z. And we can do that in the church. We can tell you uh, the Christian life is it's about you doing better in this and caring about why and doing this and doing this other thing. But what I'm telling you here this morning is that abiding in Christ is the means by which you live the Christian life in any and every circumstance. It is the essence of the Christian faith. If you think that the essence of the Christian faith is doctrine, I'm telling you it's relationship, and that relationship is defined by right doctrine. It's important. We don't want to miss the emphasis of the Scriptures. Jesus is calling us to know him, to commune with him. That's the way and the means by which we live with Christ. Amen? I want to pray to that end. I want to pray that we become a people who abide with Jesus, who live out his design and desire. Let's pray together. Lord, we hear your words this morning. We recognize that these words are true, that the world is given to hatred. Surely that hatred might show up in different ways. It might be social rejection. It might be physical persecution, as in other parts of the world. But we recognize, Lord, that the fundamental posture of the sinful heart is not just to reject you. It's to reject those whom you've sent. So, Lord, we ask for strength. We ask for strength as we abide with your son, Jesus, that you would allow your spirit to fill us, to strengthen us, that we also could bear witness to your son's death and resurrection, that you would be glorified and honored in us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.